0: There are no limitations to the mind except those we acknowledge. Chapter 4 Faith in Your Ability Visualization of, and belief in, attainment of desire The Second Step Toward Riches Faith is the head chemist of the mind. When faith is blended with thought, the subconscious mind instantly picks up the vibration. The subconscious then translates it and transmits it to infinite intelligence. The emotions of faith, love, and sex are the most powerful of all the major positive emotions. When the three are blended, they have the effect of coloring thought in such a way that it instantly reaches the subconscious mind. There, it is changed into a form that induces a response from infinite intelligence. Editor's Comments In the preceding paragraph, Napoleon Hill uses two terms, faith and infinite intelligence, both of which may convey to the reader a religious connotation that Hill did not intend. The following will define the meaning of the words as Hill uses them in the following chapter. In modern usage, the word faith has become almost interchangeable with religious belief, which is not the way Hill uses the word. Faith, as it is used here, means having confidence, trust and an absolute unwavering belief that you can do something and in order for you to have faith in yourself as hill means it it has to be true on a subconscious level if you have a nagging doubt in the back of your mind or if you are just going through the motions of pretending you believe it won't work because your subconscious will know your doubts unless you have absolute total confidence unless you are convinced without question then you don't have faith. Hill uses the term infinite intelligence to identify that part of the human mind and thinking process that produces hunches, flashes of insight, and leaps of logic. Hill's concept has similarities to what psychologist Carl Jung called the collective unconscious. And on another level, it is very close to what contemporary psychologists refer to as working in the flow state or being in the zone. Infinite intelligence is discussed in greater depth in later chapters. Hill also uses another term, the subconscious mind, that should be commented on before the reader proceeds with this chapter. Although there are differing schools of thought, in general modern psychology developed from the pioneering work of Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, each believed that the human mind operates on both a conscious and an unconscious level but they differed on the role the subconscious plays and the way it influences attitude and action. Through his own research and studies, Napoleon Hill developed a theory of the conscious and subconscious that is closest to the Jungian view. The following briefly describes the basis of Hill's view. The Conscious Mind Your conscious mind receives information through the five senses of sight, smell, taste, hearing, and touch. Your conscious mind keeps track of what you need for thinking and operating, and it filters out what you don't need. Your conscious mind, and what your memory retains, is the intelligence with which you normally think, reason, and plan. The subconscious mind. Your subconscious has access to all the same information your conscious mind receives, but it doesn't reason the way your conscious mind does. It takes everything literally. It doesn't make value judgments. It does not filter, and it does not forget. You cannot command your conscious mind to reach out and dip into your subconscious mind. However, under certain circumstances, all those forgotten facts and ideas that are always there in your subconscious can, if they are firmly rooted, influence your conscious attitudes and actions. This is the end of the Editor's Comments. How to Develop Faith The following statement is very important in understanding the importance of autosuggestion in the transmutation of desire into its physical or monetary equivalent. Namely, faith is a state of mind that may be induced or created by affirmation or repeated instructions to the subconscious mind through the principle of autosuggestion. The repetition of affirmations is like giving orders to your subconscious mind. And it is the only known method of voluntary development of the emotion of faith, absolute belief that you can do something. As an illustration, consider why you are reading this book. You want to acquire the ability to transmute the intangible thought impulse of desire into its physical counterpart, money. By following the instructions laid down in the later chapters on auto-suggestion and the subconscious mind, You will learn techniques to convince your subconscious mind that you believe you will receive that for which you ask. Your subconscious will act upon that belief and pass it back to you in the form of faith, followed by definite plans for procuring that which you desire. Faith in yourself and your abilities is a state of mind that you will be able to develop at will after you have mastered the thirteen principles in this book. This is true because faith is a state of mind that will develop naturally within you when you use and apply these principles. The emotions, or the feeling portion of thoughts, are what give your thoughts vitality, life, and action. The emotions of faith, love, and sex, when mixed with any thought impulse, give it even greater action. All thoughts that have been emotionalized, given feeling, and mixed with faith, absolute belief in your ability, begin immediately to translate themselves into their physical equivalent or counterpart. However, this is not only true of thought impulses that have been mixed with faith, but it is true with any emotion, including negative emotions. What this means is that the subconscious mind will translate into its physical equivalent a thought impulse of a negative or destructive nature just as readily as it will act upon thought impulses of a positive or constructive nature. The following statement made by a noted criminologist illustrates the point. When men first come into contact with crime, they abhor it. If they remain in contact with crime for a time, they become accustomed to it and endure it. If they remain in contact with it long enough, they finally embrace it and become influenced by it. This is the equivalent of saying that a negative impulse of thought that is repeatedly passed on to the subconscious mind often enough is finally accepted and acted upon by the subconscious mind. The subconscious then proceeds to translate that impulse into its physical equivalent by the most practical procedure available. This also accounts for the strange phenomenon that so many millions of people experience referred to as bad luck. There are millions of people who believe themselves doomed to poverty and failure because of some strange force they call bad luck, over which they believe they have no control. But the truth is that they are the creators of their own misfortunes because this negative belief in bad luck is picked up by the subconscious mind and translated into its physical equivalent. Your belief, or faith, is the element that will determine the action of your subconscious mind. Once again, let me stress that you will benefit by passing on to your subconscious mind any desire that you wish translated into its physical or monetary equivalent in a state of expectancy or belief that the transmutation will actually take place. The subconscious mind will transmute into its physical equivalent, by the most direct and practical way available, any order that is given to it in a state of belief or faith that the order will be carried out. At this point, it should also be noted that because of the way that the subconscious operates, there is nothing to stop you from deceiving your subconscious mind when giving it instructions through auto-suggestion. That is what I did when I deceived my son's subconscious mind. To make this deception more realistic, when you call upon your subconscious mind, you must conduct yourself just as you would if you were already in possession of the material thing that you are demanding. Editor's Comments It is an axiom of contemporary motivation theory that the subconscious mind cannot distinguish between what is real and what is vividly imagined. One of the most frequently cited studies supporting this concept was done with a group of basketball players. The players were divided into three teams, and the players on each team were tested on their ability to make free throws. The teams were then separated for a period of time and each team was given instructions which they were told would improve their abilities. One team was instructed to practice making baskets on a daily basis. The second team was instructed not to practice during the period and not to even think about basketball. The third team was also instructed not to practice during the period, but instead the members were told to spend their daily practice time visualizing in detail the process of making baskets. At the end of the experiment, the teams were again tested. The team that rested showed a decrease in ability. The team that practiced showed a marked increase in ability. And the team that didn't practice but visualized making baskets showed an increase in ability almost equal to those who had practiced daily. As Hill says, you can deceive your subconscious through auto-suggestion. If you convincingly plant an idea in your subconscious, your subconscious will accept and work with the idea as though it were a fact. But the key word is convincingly. If you try to send a message to your subconscious, but in the back of your mind you have a nagging doubt whether it will work, your subconscious will pick that up also. You will have sent mixed messages that cancel each other out. That is why Hill stresses the importance of doing it with faith. Your subconscious will not judge if it is true or false, positive or negative, but it does respond to the power of the input, how emotionalized the thought is. This is the end of the editor's comment. It is essential for you to encourage the positive emotions as the dominating forces of your mind. But faith in yourself doesn't come from merely reading instructions. Now that you understand the theory, you must begin to apply it, by experimenting and practicing, you will develop your ability to mix faith with any order you give to your subconscious. When you have faith in your ability, then you can give your subconscious mind instructions, which it will accept and act upon immediately. When your mind is dominated by positive emotions, it will encourage the state of mind known as faith. Faith in yourself is a state of mind that you can create by autosuggestion. All through the ages, religious leaders have admonished people to have faith. They say to have faith in this, that, and the other dogma or creed, but they have failed to tell people how to have faith. They have not stated that faith is a state of mind that may be induced by self-suggestion. In language that anyone can understand, this book explains the principle through which faith in your ability to accomplish a goal may be developed where it does not already exist. Before we begin, you should be reminded again that Faith is the eternal elixir that gives life, power, and action to the impulse of thought. Faith is the starting point of all accumulation of riches. Faith is the basis of all miracles and of all mysteries that cannot be analyzed by the rules of science. Faith is the only known antidote for failure. Faith is the element that, when mixed with desire, gives you direct communication with infinite intelligence. Faith is the element that transforms the ordinary vibration of thought created by the human mind into the spiritual equivalent. Faith is the only way the force of infinite intelligence can be harnessed and used. The Magic of Self-Suggestion It is a fact that you will come to believe whatever you repeat to yourself, whether the statement is true or false. If you repeat a lie over and over, you will eventually accept that lie as truth. Moreover, you will believe it to be the truth. You are what you are because of the dominating thoughts that you permit to occupy your mind, thoughts that you deliberately place in your own mind and encourage with sympathy and with which you mix any one or more of the emotions constitute the motivating forces that direct and control your every movement, act, and deed. The following sentence is a very significant statement of truth. Thoughts that are mixed with any of the feelings of emotions become like a magnetic force, which attracts other similar or related thoughts. A thought that is magnetized with one of the emotions may be compared to a seed. When it is planted in fertile soil, It germinates, grows, and multiplies itself over and over again. What was originally one small seed becomes countless millions of seeds of the same kind. The human mind is constantly attracting vibrations that are in sync with whatever dominates the mind. Any thought, idea, plan, or purpose that you hold in your mind attracts a host of its relatives. Add these relatives to its own force and it grows until it becomes the prime motivator of the person in whose mind it has been housed. Now, let us go back to the starting point. How can the original seed of an idea, plan, or purpose be planted in the mind? The answer? Any idea, plan, or purpose may be placed in the mind through repetition of thought. This is why you are asked to write out a statement of your major purpose or definite chief aim. Committed to memory and repeat it out loud, day after day, until these vibrations of sound have reached your subconscious mind. You are what you are because of the dominating thoughts that you permit to occupy your mind. If you choose to, you can throw off any bad influences from your past and build your own life the way you want it to be. For instance, by taking inventory of your mental assets and liabilities— you might discover that your greatest weakness is lack of self-confidence. This can be overcome and translated into courage through the principle of auto-suggestion. You can do this by writing out a set of simply stated positive thought impulses, memorizing them, and repeating them until they become a part of the working equipment of your subconscious mind. The following is an example for someone whose definite purpose is to overcome a lack of self-confidence self-confidence formula one i know that i have the ability to achieve the object of my definite purpose in life therefore i demand of myself persistent continuous action toward its attainment and i here and now promise to render such action two i realize the dominating thoughts of my mind will eventually reproduce themselves in outward physical action and gradually transform themselves into physical reality. Therefore, I will concentrate my thoughts for 30 minutes each day, visualizing the person I intend to become. In this way, I will create in my mind a clear mental picture. 3. I know through the principle of autosuggestion that any desire I persistently hold in my mind will eventually find some practical means of attaining my objective. Therefore, I will devote 10 minutes daily to demanding of myself the development of self confidence. 4. I have clearly written down a description of my definite chief aim in life, and I will never stop trying until I have developed sufficient self confidence for its attainment. 5. I fully realize that no wealth or position can last unless it is built upon truth and justice. Therefore, I will engage in no transaction that does not benefit all whom it affects. I will succeed by attracting to myself the forces I wish to use and the cooperation of others. I will persuade others to help me because of my willingness to help others. I will eliminate hatred, envy, jealousy, selfishness, and cynicism by developing love for all humanity, because I know that a negative attitude toward others can never bring me success. I will cause others to believe in me because I will believe in them and in myself. I will sign my name to this formula, commit it to memory, and repeat it aloud once a day with full faith that it will gradually influence my thoughts and actions so that I will become a self-reliant and successful person. Behind this formula is a law of nature that psychologists call autosuggestion or self-suggestion it is a proven technique that will work for your success if it is used constructively. On the other hand, if used destructively, it will destroy just as readily. In this statement may be found a very significant truth, namely that those who go down in defeat and end their lives in poverty, misery, and distress do so because of negative application of the principle of autosuggestion. All impulses of thought have a tendency to clothe themselves in their physical equivalent. The Disaster of Negative Thinking The subconscious mind makes no distinction between constructive and destructive thought impulses. It works with the material we feed it through our thought impulses. The subconscious mind will translate into reality a thought driven by fear just as readily as it will translate into reality a thought driven by courage or faith just as electricity will turn the wheels of industry and render useful service if used constructively, it will snuff out life if wrongly used. So, too, will the law of autosuggestion lead you to peace and prosperity or down into the valley of misery, failure, and death. It depends on your degree of understanding and application of it. If you fill your mind with fear or doubt, and if you do not believe in your ability to connect with and use the forces of infinite intelligence, then you will not be able to use those forces. The law of autosuggestion will take your lack of belief and use that doubt as a pattern by which your subconscious mind will translate it into its physical equivalent. Editor's Comments When you have faith in your ability to accomplish what you want, it not only firmly plants ideas in your subconscious, but it then works to reinforce itself. When you have faith in your abilities, part of what you must have faith in is that it is possible to tap into infinite intelligence. And because you have faith that it will work, your conscious mind won't be resistant. When your conscious doesn't resist, your subconscious mind can send creative ideas to your conscious mind more easily. Then, the more you see the power working in your life, the easier it is for you to act on faith the next time. Will it work for you? You will never know unless you relax your resistance and just have faith that it will. This is the end of the editor's comment. Like the wind that carries one ship east and another west, the law of autosuggestion will lift you up or pull you down according to the way you set your sails of thought. The law of autosuggestion through which any person may rise to altitudes of achievement that stagger the imagination, is well described in the following verse. Observe the words that have been emphasized, and you will catch the deep meaning that the poet had in mind. If you think you are beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you don't. If you like to win, but you think you can't, it is almost certain you won't. If you think you will lose, you're lost. For out in the world we find, success begins with a fellow's will. It's all in the state of mind. If you think you are outclassed, you are. You've got to think high to rise. You've got to be sure of yourself before you can ever win a prize. Life's battles don't always go to the stronger or faster man, but soon or late the man who wins is the man who thinks he can. Editor's Comments As noted at the beginning of this chapter, the way in which Napoleon Hill uses the word faith is meant to have no religious connotation. However, it would be impossible for Hill to write this chapter without acknowledging the power of religious faith. Therefore, in the following two paragraphs, when Hill discusses Jesus Christ and Mahatma Gandhi as exemplifying the power of faith, he is referring to their personal faith, the absolute trust in his beliefs that Jesus exhibited, and Gandhi's total conviction and confidence in his cause. In this way, they perfectly exemplify thought impulse mixed with faith. This is the end of the editor's comment. If you wish evidence of the power of faith, study the achievements of men and women who have employed it. At the head of the list comes the Nazarene. The basis of Christianity is faith, no matter how many people may have perverted or misinterpreted the meaning of this great force. The sum and substance of the teachings and the achievements of Christ, which may have been interpreted as miracles, were nothing more nor less than faith. If there are any such phenomena as miracles, they are produced only through the state of mind known as faith. Consider Mahatma Gandhi of India one of the most astounding examples of the possibilities of faith. Gandhi wielded more potential power than any man living in his time. And he had this power, despite the fact that he had none of the orthodox tools of power, such as money, battleships, soldiers, and materials of warfare. Gandhi had no money, no home. He did not own a suit of clothes. But he did have power. How did he come by that power? He created it out of his understanding of the principle of faith and through his ability to transplant that faith into the minds of two hundred million people. Gandhi accomplished the astounding feat of influencing two hundred million minds to coalesce and move in unison as a single mind. What other force on earth, except faith, could do as much? How an idea built a fortune. Editor's Comment Although the following story is not exclusively about faith, and it makes no mention of autosuggestion or the subconscious mind, Napoleon Hill included it at this point in every edition of Think and Grow Rich. In fact, as Hill says, this story illustrates at least six of the thirteen principles of success, but faith is at the center of it. If the central figure, Charles M. Schwab, Had not mixed his big idea with absolute, unwavering faith that he could pull it off, the whole history of American business would have been different. This is the end of the editor's comment. The event chosen for this illustration dates back to 1900, when the United States Steel Corporation was being formed. As you read the story, keep in mind the following fundamental facts and you will understand how ideas have been converted into huge fortunes. First, the United States Steel Corporation was born in the mind of Charles M. Schwab in the form of an idea he created through his imagination. Second, he mixed faith with his idea. Third, he formulated a plan for the transformation of his idea into physical and financial reality. Fourth, he put his plan into action with his famous speech at the University Club. Fifth, He applied and followed through on his plan with persistence and backed it with firm decision until it had been fully carried out. Sixth, he prepared the way for success by a burning desire for success. If you are one of those who have often wondered how great fortunes are accumulated, this story of the creation of the United States Steel Corporation will be enlightening. If you have any doubt that a person can think and grow rich— this story should dispel that doubt. You can plainly see in the story of United States Steel the application of a major portion of the principles described in this book. This astounding description of the power of an idea was dramatically told by John Lowell in the New York World Telegram with whose courtesy it is here reprinted. Editor's Comments In order for the modern reader to fully appreciate the following newspaper story, It is appropriate at this point to provide some background information about the main players. Charles M. Schwab was Andrew Carnegie's right-hand man and president of the Carnegie Steel Corporation. Andrew Carnegie was a wealthy and powerful steel baron whose company controlled 25% of the iron and steel production in America. J.P. Morgan was a wealthy and powerful Wall Street banker whose company had arranged the financing for many of the major industrial companies in America at the beginning of the twentieth century. All the reader needs to know about the other men mentioned in the story is that at the beginning of the twentieth century, finance, business, and industry were dominated by a few hundred men, most of whom had amassed great fortunes through some connection with the railroads that had opened the country. These people were well known to readers of the New York World-Telegram because of their financial influence. And that sets the stage for the following newspaper article, which is not only a fascinating story about the power of faith in an idea, but also a wonderful example of the irreverent writing style that was used by many newspaper journalists of the day. This is the end of the editor's comment. A Pretty After-Dinner Speech for a Billion Dollars when on the evening of December 12, 1900, some eighty of the nation's financial nobility gathered in the banquet hall of the University Club on Fifth Avenue to do honor to a young man from out of the West, not half a dozen of the guests realized they were to witness the most significant episode in American industrial history. J. Edward Simmons and Charles Stuart Smith, their hearts full of gratitude for the lavish hospitality bestowed on them by Charles M. Schwab during a recent visit to Pittsburgh, had arranged the dinner to introduce the thirty-eight-year-old steel man to Eastern Banking Society, but they didn't expect him to stampede the convention. They warned him, in fact, that the bosoms within New York's stuffed shirts would not be responsive to oratory, and that if he didn't want to bore the Stillmans and Harrimans and Vanderbilts, he had better limit himself to fifteen or twenty minutes of polite vaporings and let it go at that. Even John Pierpont Morgan, sitting on the right hand of Schwab, as became his imperial dignity, intended to grace the banquet table with his presence only briefly, and so far as the press and public were concerned, the whole affair was of so little moment that no mention of it found its way into print the next day. So the two hosts and their distinguished guests ate their way through the usual seven or eight courses. There was little conversation, and what there was of it was restrained. Few of the bankers and brokers had met Schwab, whose career had flowered along the banks of the Monongahela, and none knew him well. But before the evening was over, they, and with them Money Master Morgan, were to be swept off their feet, and a billion-dollar baby, the United States Steel Corporation, was to be conceived. It is perhaps unfortunate, for the sake of history, that no record of Charlie Schwab's speech at the dinner ever was made. It is probable, however, that it was a homely speech, somewhat ungrammatical, for the niceties of language never bothered Schwab, full of epigram and threaded with wit. But aside from that it had a galvanic force and effect upon the five billions of estimated capital that was represented by the diners. After it was over, and the gathering was still under its spell, although Schwab had talked for ninety minutes, Morgan led the orator to a recessed window where Dangling their legs from the high, uncomfortable seat, they talked for an hour more. The magic of the Schwab personality had been turned on full force, but what was more important and lasting was the full-fledged, clear-cut program he laid down for the aggrandizement of steel. Many other men had tried to interest Morgan in slapping together a steel trust after the pattern of the biscuit, wire and hoop, sugar, rubber, whiskey, oil, or chewing-gum combinations. Editor's Comments. The Random House College Dictionary defines a trust as an illegal combination of industrial or commercial companies in which the stock is controlled by a central board of trustees, thus making it possible to control prices and destroy competition. Many of America's new industrial companies had grown so quickly that they were not yet profitable. They were saddled with huge debt incurred in raising the capital to finance their rapid expansion, and at the same time they were faced with having to cut costs and slash prices or go out of business. The answer for many was to join up with others in related industries to form what were called trusts or combinations. Although trusts were illegal since the passage of the Sherman Antitrust Act in 1890, companies still tried to find ways to monopolize their industries, and if their efforts weren't technically trusts, they were something very close. The one thing the large company owners who assembled these trusts needed was cash to buy up the many smaller companies they would have to own in order to effectively dominate an industry. J.P. Morgan was the banker who financed many such takeovers. This is the end of the editor's comment. John W. Gates, the gambler, had urged it, but Morgan distrusted him. The Moore boys, Bill and Jim, Chicago stock jobbers who had glued together a match trust and a cracker corporation, had urged it and failed. Elbert H. Gary, the sanctimonious country lawyer, wanted to foster it, but he wasn't big enough to be impressive. Until Schwab's eloquence took J.P. Morgan to the heights from which he could visualize the solid results of the most daring financial undertaking ever conceived, the project was regarded as a delirious dream of easy-money crackpots. The financial magnetism that began a generation ago to attract thousands of small and sometimes inefficiently managed companies into large and competition-crushing combinations had become operative in the steel world through the devices of that jovial business pirate John W. Gates. Gates already had formed the American Steel and Wire Company out of a chain of small concerns, and together with Morgan had created the Federal Steel Company. But by the side of Andrew Carnegie's gigantic vertical trust, a trust owned and operated by fifty-three partners, those other combinations were picayune. They might combine to their heart's content, but the whole lot of them couldn't make a dent in the Carnegie organization, and Morgan knew it. The eccentric old Scott knew it, too. Editor's Comments Andrew Carnegie was born in Scotland and came to America when he was just a boy. He made his first move to join the elite group of American tycoons when he quit his job as a bobbin boy in a cotton mill, earning a dollar twenty a week, and got a job as a telegraph messenger boy. He soon taught himself to operate a telegraph key, which got him hired as personal telegrapher and secretary to the head of the Pennsylvania Railroad. It wasn't long before he'd worked his way up the ranks to superintendent of the Pittsburgh division, which in turn put him in a position to become an early investor in the Pullman Company, which became the leading manufacturer of railway cars. Carnegie's investment in Pullman and some successful real estate ventures gave him the capital to go into business for himself. At the end of the Civil War, Carnegie left railroading and started a company that built iron bridges for railroad companies. From building iron bridges, it was a short step to starting his own steel mill— Which led him to acquire control of other steel mills, then his own coal fields to supply his smelters, then his own ore boats and rail lines to haul the ore and coal. Because of Carnegie's vertical integration and his use of the most up to date manufacturing methods, he was able to sell top grade steel at the lowest price. He managed to drop the price of steel from $140 a ton to $20 a ton. By 1899, The Carnegie Steel Company controlled about 25% of the iron and steel production in America. The smaller steel manufacturers couldn't compete with Carnegie, so they went to J.P. Morgan for help. He arranged for the financing, and a wide-ranging alliance was put together of companies that were in the business of manufacturing products made from steel. Part of the deal was that they would not buy steel from Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie was not about to be put out of business by a collection of small companies. He announced that he would buy or build his own manufacturing companies to produce finished goods made of steel. This is the end of the editor's comments, and the New York World-Telegram story continues. From the magnificent heights of Skibbo Castle, he had viewed, first with amusement and then with resentment, the attempts of Morgan's smaller companies to cut into his business— When the attempts became too bold, Carnegie's temper was translated into anger and retaliation. He decided to duplicate every mill owned by his rivals. Hitherto he hadn't been interested in wire, pipe, hoops, or sheet. Instead he was content to sell such companies the raw steel and let them work it into whatever shape they wanted. Now, with Schwab as his chief and able lieutenant, he planned to drive his enemies to the wall. So it was that in the speech of Charles M. Schwab, Morgan saw the answer to his problem of combination. A trust without Carnegie, giant of them all, would be no trust at all, a plum pudding, as one writer said, without the plums. Schwab's speech on the night of December 12, 1900, undoubtedly carried the inference, though not the pledge, that the vast Carnegie enterprise could be brought under the Morgan tent. He talked of the world future for steel of reorganization for efficiency, of specialization, of the scrapping of unsuccessful mills and concentration of effort on the flourishing properties, of economies in the ore traffic, of economies in overhead and administrative departments, of capturing foreign markets. More than that, he told the buccaneers among them wherein lay the errors of their customary piracy. Their purposes, he inferred, had been to create monopolies, raise prices, and pay themselves fat dividends out of privilege. Schwab condemned the system in his heartiest manner. The short-sightedness of such a policy, he told his hearers, lay in the fact that it restricted the market in an era when everything cried for expansion. By cheapening the cost of steel, he argued, an ever-expanding market would be created. More uses for steel would be devised, and a goodly portion of the world trade could be captured. Actually, though he did not know it, Schwab was an apostle of modern mass production. Editor's Comments For J.P. Morgan, all of Schwab's talk about economies of scale and expanding markets meant only one thing. Until that night, it was assumed that Andrew Carnegie would continue building his own manufacturing companies to compete with the steel trusts that Morgan had helped put together. Morgan knew that for Carnegie to do so would require an enormous amount of capital, and Morgan also knew that Carnegie had always been strongly against raising money by selling stock in his company. What Schwab seemed to be implying was that rather than going to Wall Street for the money needed to fight the trusts, Carnegie might be interested in selling his business. This is the end of the editor's comments. New York World Telegram story continues. So the dinner at the University Club came to an end. Morgan went home to think about Schwab's rosy predictions. Schwab went back to Pittsburgh to run the steel business for Wee and carnegie while Gary and the rest went back to their stock tickers to fiddle around in anticipation of the next move. It was not long coming. It took Morgan about one week to digest the feast of reason Schwab had placed before him. When he had assured himself that no financial indigestion was to result, he sent for Schwab, and found that young man rather coy. Mr. Carnegie, Schwab indicated, might not like it if he found his trusted company president had been flirting with the Emperor of Wall Street, the street upon which Carnegie was resolved never to tread. Then it was suggested by John W. Gates, the go-between, that if Schwab happened to be in the Bellevue Hotel in Philadelphia, J.P. Morgan might also happen to be there. When Schwab arrived, however, Morgan was inconveniently ill at his New York home, and so on the elder man's pressing invitation, Schwab went to New York and presented himself at the door of the financier's library. Now, certain economic historians have professed the belief that from the beginning to the end of the drama, the stage was set by Andrew Carnegie that the dinner to Schwab, the famous speech, the Sunday night conference between Schwab and the money king, were events arranged by the canny Scott. The truth is exactly the opposite. When Schwab was called in to consummate the deal, he didn't even know whether the little boss, as Andrew was called, would so much as listen to an offer to sell, particularly to a group of men whom Andrew regarded as being endowed with something less than holiness. But Schwab did take into the conference with him, in his own handwriting, six sheets of copperplate figures, representing to his mind the physical worth and the potential earning capacity of every steel company he regarded as an essential star in the new metal firmament. Four men pondered over these figures all night. The chief, of course, was Morgan, steadfast in his belief in the divine right of money. With him was his aristocratic partner, Robert Bacon, a scholar and a gentleman. The third was John W. Gates, whom Morgan scorned as a gambler and used as a tool. The fourth was Schwab, who knew more about the processes of making and selling steel than any whole group of men then living. Throughout that conference, the Pittsburghers' figures were never questioned. If he said a company was worth so much, then it was worth that much and no more. He was insistent, too, upon including in the combination only those concerns he nominated. He had conceived a corporation in which there would be no duplication, not even to satisfy the greed of friends who wanted to unload their companies upon the broad Morgan shoulders. When dawn came, Morgan rose and straightened his back. Only one question remained. "'Do you think you can persuade Andrew Carnegie to sell?' he asked. "'I can try,' said Schwab. "'If you can get him to sell, I will undertake the matter,' said Morgan. "'So far, so good.' But would Carnegie sell? How much would he demand? Schwab thought about $320 million. What would he take payment in? Common or preferred stocks? Bonds? Cash? Nobody could raise a third of a billion dollars in cash. There was a golf game in January on the frost-cracking heath of the St. Andrew's Lynx in Westchester, with Andrew bundled up in sweaters against the cold and Charlie talking volubly, as usual, to keep his spirits up. But no word of business was mentioned until the pair sat down in the cozy warmth of the Carnegie Cottage nearby. Then, with the same persuasiveness that had hypnotized eighty millionaires at the university club, Schwab poured out the glittering promises of retirement and comfort, of untold millions to satisfy the old man's social caprices. Carnegie, capitulated, wrote a figure on a slip of paper, handed it to Schwab and said, All right, that's what we'll sell for. The figure was approximately $400 million, and was reached by taking the $320 million mentioned by Schwab as a basic figure, and adding to it $80 million to represent the increased capital value over the previous two years. Later, on the deck of a transatlantic liner, the Scotsman said ruefully to Morgan, "'I wish I had asked you for $100 million more.' "'If you had asked for it, you'd have gotten it,' Morgan told him cheerfully." There was an uproar, of course. A British correspondent cabled that the foreign steel world was appalled by the gigantic combination. President Hadley of Yale declared that unless trusts were regulated, the country might expect an emperor in Washington within the next twenty five years. But that able stock manipulator Keane went at his work of shoving the new stock at the public so vigorously that all the excess water, estimated by some at nearly six hundred million dollars, was absorbed in a twinkling. So Carnegie had his millions, and the Morgan Syndicate had 62 million dollars for all its trouble, and all the boys, from Gates to Gary, had their millions. Editor's Comment The 38-year-old Charles M. Schwab had his reward, too. He was made president of the new corporation, United States Steel, and remained in control until 1930. When Schwab left U.S. Steel, he went on to found the Mammoth Bethlehem Steel Corporation, of which he also became president. This is the end of the editor's comment. Riches Begin With Thought The dramatic story of big business that you have just finished is a perfect illustration of the method by which desire can be transmuted into its physical equivalent. That giant organization was created in the mind of one man. The plan by which the organization was provided with the steel mills that gave it financial stability was created in the mind of the same man. His faith, his desire, his imagination, his persistence were the real ingredients that went into United States steel. The steel mills and equipment acquired by the corporation, after it had been brought into legal existence, were incidental. However, careful analysis reveals that the appraised value of the properties acquired by the corporation— increased in value by an estimated $600 million, approximately $12 billion today. The increase in value of the assets is attributable to the mere transaction that consolidated them under one management. In other words, Charles M. Schwab's idea, plus the faith with which he conveyed it to the minds of J.P. Morgan and the others, was marketed for a profit of approximately $600 million not an insignificant sum for a single idea. The United States Steel Corporation prospered and became one of the richest and most powerful corporations in America, employing thousands of people, developing new uses for steel and opening new markets, thus proving that the $600 million in profit that the Schwab idea produced was earned. Riches begin in the form of thought. The amount is limited only by the person in whose mind the thought is put into motion. Faith removes limitations. Remember this when you are ready to bargain with life for whatever it is that you ask as your price for having passed this way. Editor's Comments In the years since that article appeared in the New York World-Telegram, the well-told business story has become its own genre within the publishing industry. There are best-selling books and biographies by and about the insiders who run every industry. The editors of this edition of Think and Grow Rich strongly encourage you to sample some of these books. They can be entertaining and inspirational, and in them you will be able to see examples of Hill's Principles of Success at work in the real world. The best of them are not only entertaining and inspirational, but they are filled with ideas and techniques you can adapt and use. There are literally too many bestsellers from which to select a best-of listing for inclusion here. Any such choice the editors might make would not necessarily be the best, but merely reflective of the interests of the person doing the choosing. However, there are two books the editors recommend that are not by or about a single individual or industry. These books are In Search of Excellence by Tom Peters and Breakthroughs by P.R. Nyack and John M. Ketteringham. Each of these books deals with a broad spectrum of industries, and within each industry they single out certain companies and individuals for analysis. Both were published at the beginning of the business book trend in the 1980s, but there are few books since then that better convey the importance of faith in a good idea. In Search of Excellence, chosen by a panel of experts as the most influential book of the past twenty years, was a runaway bestseller and will likely be in print for years to come. Breakthroughs may be harder to find, but it will be well worth the effort. This is the end of the editor's comments.